The reading this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, starting at verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies, foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sworn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is God's word. Uh, My name's Phil. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. If we've not met, I'd love to meet you afterward. Let's pray as we look at this wonderful last section of Hebrews together. Our Father God, we pray that you would grow our faith this morning as we look at your word together so that we might live lives of confidence, lives that trust you and lives that are not blown away by every circumstance. Amen. How do you calculate if God is good? Do you think God is good if you're a Christian here and you look at your life? Well, let me sharpen the question. When you think about the future, when you think about the years, decades ahead, God willing, what do you think God needs to do to give, to provide, for you to be able at the end of your life to look back and say, God has been good to me? What do you think God will have to do for you to be able to say, I feel, I believe, I know God is good to me? Some of us here this morning will be questioning this ourselves. It's, it's alive, not a theoretical issue. And this last section of Hebrews really answers that question as it addresses what can we expect from a life of faith? What can we bank on here and now if we trust in Jesus? As we've seen, Hebrews 11 is, it's not everything the Bible has to say about faith, but it is one of the great chapters that digs into what faith is. Faith is all about living your life trusting God. And as we've seen, the the writer really here defines faith this way. Faith is an active trust for a certain promise about an unseen future. Faith is an active trust in God. It does things for a certain promise It does things because God has promised something about an unseen future. It looks to what God has promised will happen. And here in this uh, last 
section, we're going to see, firstly, that faith wins great victories. He's giving a, a history lesson here. Now, most of the people that uh, the writer was writing to, or really, this is almost a transcription of a sermon, most of the people that he is writing to uh, seem to have grown up in the Jewish faith. And so they will have known, they will have recognized all that he's talking about. Verse 32, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. Uh, God told Gideon, the first one, to, to fight a massive Midianite army. And he was told to do so with just 300 men. But God enabled him to rout and destroy an entire army. Uh, Barak and his men were facing slaughter, and Barak was quite a wimp from a vastly superior army that had iron chariots, which is basically the stealth bombers of the day. They are the, the top military technology, but God brought a deluge of rain that rendered the chariots absolutely useless. And so Barak and his men were able to find victory. Uh, Samson was given a comic book hero, super strength, by God to liberate the Israelites after they'd been oppressed for decades by the brutal Philistines. Uh, the same goes for Jephthah. God called each of them to go, each of them to trust him to provide victory, and they went and they won victories that they had no right to, no power to bring about. Now, David was just a, a scrawny little shepherd boy, but he believed God was almighty. So David didn't compare Goliath, the nine-foot giant, with himself. He compared Goliath with almighty God and said, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> what's, he, what's he got on God? And God gave him victory. We then get the three groups of three in verses 33 to 34. As he uh, talks in general terms, those who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Those who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. And whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, and who routed foreign armies. As he sweeps through most of the Old Testament here, uh, Daniel and the first name, as we think about lions, he was an old man with very little strength, but he trusted God. So when Darius said, do not pray to God, the God of the Bible, well, Daniel wasn't bothered, even though Darius said, I will throw you into a den of lions if you refuse me. Three years earlier, we read in verse 34, that the, quench, the fury of the flames would be quenched. And Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stood before another tyrant in the same city of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And once again, they were told, disobey the, king of the, uh, the God of the Bible and worship the king of Babylon. And this time, the question of will you obey the king or will you obey God was asked at the entrance to a massive furnace. I mean, this is a proper burning question, literally. And they're told, this is your fate if you refuse and we read these extraordinary words in Daniel 3.16 as they face the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. They had faith, and remarkably, although they're thrown into a furnace that is so incredibly hot that the guards who threw them in were consumed with the fire themselves, they emerged unscathed without so much as a burnt eyebrow. Verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. 
James 5 tells us Elijah was just an ordinary man. But when the widow of Zarephath's son died, Elijah prayed for the boy and God brought him back to life. Faith wins mighty victories, we learn in Hebrews 11. We learn throughout the Old Testament, faith wins mighty victories because faith plugs into the mighty power of God. Now this is very, very different from the way our culture thinks you achieve great things. So biblical faith is not Disney faith. You know, the plot line to, well, every Disney film there's ever been is basically you just have to look within and you'll find if you look within and trust yourself when you're true to yourself, you can be a prince or a princess or a star athlete or a hero who stands up to the bullies or whatever it is. But always the power comes from looking within. But that's not the story of Hebrews 11. I walked the dog through Brompton Cemetery this week and I said, come out and be raised. And there was not a stirring in any of the graves. None of us have the power to raise the dead. That's just not a human power. But biblical faith doesn't look in like Disney tells me. Biblical faith looks out and up to God. Biblical faith is about turning from the double A batteries of my own strength and plugging into the mains electricity supply of God's almighty power. And he really can raise the dead. Faith wins, not just great victories. Faith wins victories that are impossible. Faith wins victories that prove that there is a God because there is no human explanation for them. But it doesn't end there, does it? Verse 35 continues. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. How very odd. So what is the difference between these two groups? Well, the answer comes in verse 39. These ones suffered because they had less faith. You should be looking a little bit surprised at this point. Our authority is the Bible, not the preacher, and the Bible doesn't say that. If your Bible does say that, rip it up because someone's typed it out wrongly. It says in verse 39, these were all commended For their faith. Only here, in this second group, rather than enabling them to win great victories, faith enables them to endure great suffering. Same faith, different outcomes. Faith succeeds and faith suffers. Faith raises to life and faith goes to die. The contrast, I think, in the two halves of verse 35, which hinges this passage, is deliberate. Women receive back their dead are literally resurrected to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. It's the same word that's used. Some received dead loved ones resurrected back to life on earth. Others suffered in death in the certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. They're trusting in the same God. Faith trusts and faith looks to God, regardless of the outcome. Faith is not about guaranteeing success in this life. Faith is about clinging to God. 
And it is God who determines whether I get the sort of things that make me feel like my life is working out or whether I know struggle and hardship. Faith clings to God, whatever. Now you need to know there is a perverted offshoot of Christianity that is tragically popular that reads only the first half of this passage today. It's called the prosperity gospel. And sadly, tragically, its preachers are all over supposedly Christian television. And like the most dangerous lies, it's built on a half-truth. Uh, the inspiring preachers with their perfect hair and their beautiful teeth smile at you from the TV and tell you, faith can move mountains. If you have enough faith, God will give you victory in your relationships, in your finances, in your health. If you trust in Jesus, you have the blood of the champion flowing through their veins. If you believe it, you will receive it. And we would love for it to be true so we don't turn it off. And God might do those things. He's God. And the first half of this passage tells us he can. And he sometimes does. But the seductive lie ignores the second half of this passage. See, faith is not a magic spell that if I get it right, everything will be perfect. As long as I say it right, as long as I trust enough, like in Harry Potter, if, I'm, if my magic is powerful enough, then anything will happen. Faith is trust in God. Faith is relying on him, turning to him, leaving it to him. And God is God. He's not a genie as if he, he's there in heaven. He's, oh no, you've exercised faith. I wasn't planning on doing that, but oh, I've got no choice now. You've exercised faith. I'd better do it. No, he's God. He's sovereign. He determines how our lives go. And whether my faith is as strong as Daniel, who seems to have been an extraordinary man of trust in God, or a coward like Gideon, who continually questioned and doubted God, God is powerful to do what he wants through us. The prosperity gospel is a lie because it ignores the second half of this passage. It ignores the countless Christians in the Bible and around the world who have amazing faith and yet are living lives of suffering and difficulty. It ignores the example of the apostles who are beaten and abused and financially poor and sometimes dealt with long-term sickness. And ultimately, of course, and most perversely, it ignores the example of Jesus, who had perfect faith in his heavenly Father and yet is described as the man of sorrows, whose earthly life was marked by persecution and poverty and opposition, who prayed to and trusted God and was beaten, unjustly condemned, and then tortured to death on a cross. It ignores the Jesus who never knew prosperity and victory in this life. By faith, 17 years ago, a group of us who had been gathering to pray about planting a new church in West London. Eventually, we got given a building, and by faith, we prepared to launch at 6 p.m. on the last Sunday in January in 2001. We turned up at the building by faith to find it had been blocked because the people who'd been renting it decided they didn't want to vacate. By faith, we prayed on the streets and we went out. And by faith, the rather plush Four Seasons Hotel allowed us to use their ballroom for free. And so by faith, Christchurch Mayfair was planted and began. By faith, it's helped plant at least three more churches. By faith, we've been able to train over 60 young men and women in full-time gospel ministry. By faith, we've baptized over 100 people in those years. All by faith. By faith, eight years ago, I was also part of a group that gathered to pray about planting a church in Clapham. 
By faith, we searched out a venue. By faith, we approached people to join the plant. And by faith, we launched in November. And by faith, we saw a number of people baptized. And by faith, we trained up a couple of apprentices. And by faith, we struggled as we didn't grow fast enough as people left. And by faith, four and a half years ago, we decided this church may not be growing well enough to survive. And so by faith, we had to take the decision to close the church. By faith, we failed. I was part of both groups. I think the prayer meetings looked the same. I think the faith exercise looked the same. Sometimes faith sees God do great victory and sometimes faith clings to him when things don't go well. Same faith, same actions, different outcome. And we will never survive long in the Christian life unless we're ready for that. Faith is not a guarantee everything will go well in this life. Faith trusts God and leaves him to do what he knows is best. And therefore, we need to recalibrate sometimes the way we talk about people who have faith. So I think we're quick to marvel at the faith of someone who gets sick and prays, and they're healed in a way which just confounds medical opinion. I mean, the word we'd use is a miracle. But I hope we're just as quick to marvel at the faith of someone who gets sick and prays for healing, and is not healed and endures pain and suffering for year after year after year after year and still clings to God and says through the tears he is good. Because that requires just as much faith. Okay, so why is it that some succeed and others fail? It would be really useful to know why some people succeed and others suffer. I'd love to know the secret. And in part, I think the answer does come down to our definition of faith. Faith is an active trust for a certain promise about an unseen future. See, when Gideon went to tackle the Midianite army with 300 people, he had a promise God told him to go and to fight and to win. You and I do not have a promise from God that if we pray enough, we will have the the family, the finances, the health that we long for. Well, okay, why bother being a Christian? (laughs) If when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, there is no guarantee that God will help you in this life, why bother being a Christian? And the answer comes in the last three verses, last two verses. Faith focuses on the promised future. And actually, I think we get the most surprising words in the entire chapter in the middle of verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Do you see the surprising words? None of them received what had been promised. Now that's obvious for the ones who uh, we read lost their homes. It's obvious for those who are persecuted or were torn, uh, tortured or were sawn in two, verse 37. But God says none of them. In other words, even the victorious believers from verses 32 to 35, even the the widow of Zarephath, whose son was raised back to life after he died, even she did not receive what had been promised. Not David, who went from shepherd to king and killed the mighty giant Goliath. Not Daniel, who spent a night in a den of ravenous lions without so much as a scratch. None of them received what had been promised. 
And the key is this word better in verse 40. Since God had planned something better. It also appeared, did you notice, in verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so they might gain an even better resurrection. Better is a crucial word in the book of Hebrews. And better, always in the book of Hebrews, refers to the realities that we have in Jesus Christ, rather than the rituals of Old Testament religion that the people he's writing to were tempted to turn back to. And people that the writer is writing to in Hebrews, they felt... Christianity's thin and weak and life is difficult. They had no great stone and gold temple to go to. They had no visible sacrifices to trust in for their forgiveness. They had no physical priest to lead them into God's presence. Instead, they were just told, trust in an unseen Jesus who died years ago in a death you've never seen. But the message of Hebrews is that trust in Jesus is better because his salvation is more real, more powerful, and more lasting than the physical, the tangible, the visible things that they long for now. And so Hebrews reminded them, and it tells us today, to look to the future. God's forgiveness for us is today. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you're not yet a Christian, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ this morning, you walk out of this building forgiven. No rituals needed. No uh, time for parole or anything. You just, you're forgiven instantly. And you're fully restored to a relationship with God. But God's promises are not exhausted by our forgiveness. They'll only be fully enjoyed in the future when Jesus returns and remakes this world so it'll be pure and perfect paradise and we'll live with him there forever. The focus of Christianity is the future. Now we want money in our accounts now, let's be honest. The Bible promises riches in heaven. We want physical healing in our bodies. The Bible promises a new body that will last forever. We want husbands, wives, children now who we can see and talk and cuddle. The Bible promises us a real relationship with God by his spirit now and a face-to-face relationship with God in the new creation. And that feels second best to us too often. And so we... We kind of build this picture of Christianity where we think, if I just trust God enough, then it will work out in this life. And and we know so many Christians who seem to have trusted and prayed and, and have got all that stuff, as well as the hope for the future. But the truth is, God has something better planned for you than it all working out in this life. Something better than getting married. Something better than an end to your financial problems. Something better than those health issues working out. Something better than kids or career success. And when we pray for stuff down here, which we should, Jesus tells us to pray for the things that concern us. We need to remember what we're doing. Forgive me if this is slightly crass, but basically we're saying, God, I'd like a better shack in the slum here. We're begging him, God, please would you give me a tin roof rather than a plastic one that leaks? And when I have a tin roof over my shack in the slum, I think God is really good. But when I've got a leaky plastic one, I think, I doubt you, God, and um, I don't think you are good. And all the while, God is saying, you're only here for a short while, and I am preparing a paradise mansion 
by the beach for you to live for all eternity. And we are fixated on whether my shack in the slum is as nice as the other shacks in the slum. There's a a book by a chap called Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. He got a a Nobel Prize for um, the research. And basically, the book boils down to this. We're slightly lazier than we thought. You think you get a Nobel Prize for that? Extraordinary. But anyway, uh, at the heart of it is the idea of heuristic. Do you know what a heuristic is? A heuristic is, a, is when you get asked a complicated question and unconsciously, without realising it, your brain just answers a different but similar question that saves you the bother of really working out the complicated thing. So if I ask you, do you like living in London? Well, rather than calculate, well, uh, how is it working for me financially, relationally, uh, in terms of living space, quality of life, effect of the stress on health compared with the career opportunities? That's quite, that's quite a, a tiring and a slow thing to work out. So actually, our minds just sort of flip to, um, has there been a tube strike recently or is the sun shining? And we say yes or no, depending on just how things are going right now, which is a good thing. Heuristics are helpful because otherwise... Every conversation would take seven hours. As you know, you know uh, how's your marriage going? Well, oh, okay. I, let me get back to you in three weeks. While I, you know, it's just life would be too slow and tiring. Um, so heuristics are good, but the danger is when I ask you, "Is God good to you?" And at that point, heuristics are very dangerous because all of us automatically jump to, "How does my life feel right now?" And our circumstances are a terrible, terrible indicator of God's goodness. Because there is no promise in the Bible that if you trust in God, it will work out in this life. Is God good? This section finishes uh, in 12, 1 to 3. We're not going to go into there. We haven't got time. But it ends sensibly in 12, verse 2 with the call to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And when we ask ourselves, is God good? That is what we need to do. The Christian life is a journey. It's a life of faith. And as we've said, faith is an active trust for a certain promise about an unseen future. Faith is looking to the promise of the future. Is God good? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter, the pioneer. So is God good? I should always, as I travel through the Christian life, have in the rear view mirror of my life the cross. Is God good? He gave his own son to willingly die on the cross for my sins. Is God good? In history, I know he is. But we're not just looking back. As we travel through the Christian life, we're not just looking in the rearview mirror at the cross. Is God good? We're also looking at the promises for the future where Jesus is now preparing a place for us with the Father in paradise. And I look to the future, to a perfect world and a perfect body and a perfect relationship, to a perfect friendship with everybody I know here, to, to perfect riches and fun and adventure. Is God good? The rearview mirror shows me Christ on the cross. Is God good? The, through the windscreen I can see the resurrected Christ coming back to make everything perfect. So if I get Hebrews 11, 
then it does change how I answer, is God good? It's not answered by how does my life feel or look now, but what has Christ done for me in the past and what has he promised for my future? If we're not clear on that, then the truth is that when suffering comes in sharp and hard or when disappointment just doesn't seem to improve and it just grinds on and on and on, we'll either run from God or just get bitter about God. If we do get it, we'll be free. When I'm convinced God is good and when I have in my hands his ticket to eternal paradise, I don't need to be consumed by bitterness when this life doesn't work out. There'll be times when I grieve for the life that I hope for and haven't got. But I don't need to be crushed by the disappointments and the difficulties. I don't need to give in to grumbling, to hoarding and to self-protecting. We're free to give of ourselves, our time, our money, our emotions to serve others. We're free to invite others to join us as we head for paradise. Fix your eyes on Christ. His cross is in your rear view mirror and the crown of glory is further down the road. And is God good? Is God good is always grounded in those two things. Whether faith brings you great victories or faith sustains you through great suffering. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are sorry for um, how shallow we are, how quickly we get to grumbling when life doesn't work out, when you don't give me the stuff you've given other Christians. Our Father, we pray that we would trust that you are a God who can do remarkable things through faith, and so we pray we would be willing to step out, to risk, to try things for you, trusting that you are still active today. But we pray too that we would not fool ourselves that we can guarantee what we want and so we pray that when life is hard and when we fail that we would keep trusting you keep following you and keep looking for the fulfillment of the great promises that will one day be ours in Christ and thank you father that in eternity you will be proved good for at your hand are pleasures forevermore amen